0: Yeah, it's, it's my personal evolution about optimum pH. And, and I now recommend, well, we do, but I recommend higher optimums, mainly because I think they're safer for nutrition. You know, if, if the pH gets, it's kind of like, where do you drive in a road? And if there's nobody coming, drive right in the middle of the frickin' road. <laughs> it gives you the biggest buffer on both sides. and And pH, if it, if it should drift low, you get micronutrient toxicities. Um, if it drifts high, you get iron deficiency, except in cannabis. Cannabis just gets iron all the time. So we've been using a higher pH for cannabis to make sure we don't get toxic uptake of especially manganese.
1: Now, your recommended pH was 5.5 five to 5.8, five, but with the cannabis plant, what are you guys running right now in the lab? And
0: more, more like six and a half. 6.5. 6.5? Uh, 6.5, yeah.
1: And on commercial scale cultivation regarding pH, and what, what kind of media are you in?
0: Lots of them yeah. <laughs> because we're in research, but... Um, Our our standard media that we've used forever and ever is a peat-based media. And we could get into how we evolved exactly what's in there, but the main ingredient is peat, Canadian peat. But we've also grown a lot in coconut choir, We've also grown a lot in mineral wool, like Grodan, and then a lot of studies in straight liquid hydroponics too.
1: Now, the recommended 6.5 pH, you... Do you you recommend you're kind of testing that in all medias or is there specific medias that you're running that in?
0: No, in all media. Okay. Um, And Now, this is one of those things that's more of a good-sounding hypothesis than that we have a ton of research data for. But we have had instances more than once where the pH accidentally drifted low and we got manganese toxicity, and the black spots on the leaves. It's a classic symptom. And they test high in manganese. Um, and it's really bad, you know. And then you're trying to get the pH back up and everything. Um, in other crops, if we grew them at six and a half, we would start to get iron deficiency chlorosis, interveinal yellowing between the leaves, that's really bad, and you have chelates to prevent that and to minimize that. But, man, cannabis, you could have iron five counties away, and it'd find it. I mean, <laughs> it just never has iron deficiencies. So we can now err on the high side for pH and minimize the potential for micronutrient toxicity. That'll be interesting.
1: We should run you know, 6.5 pH on some side-by-sides. But is it, is it really necessary, though, since we're not having any manganese toxicity? So, would it, it, I mean, shouldn't we just keep doing what we're doing?
0: Sure. Yeah. You should. Sure. There's nothing wrong with it. If okay. you haven't had a pH-controlled failure on the low side, you know, it's... it's manganese is unique among the micronutrients. I, I may be one of the few people that keeps saying manganese has active uptake which means the plants just suck it up fast. they You give them a big reservoir, and they'll just draw the manganese down to zero. They take it all up, and no other micronutrient is like that. And so you got to be careful about not having too much manganese. The, the most specific thing that happens, and now this is a little bit of chemistry, but all these micronutrients form hydroxides, M-N-O-H, And OH is a hydroxide. And OH is what makes water alkaline. And MNOH is uh, not soluble and doesn't go through plant membranes. Um, So when the pH is high, you get manganese hydroxide and the plant can't take that up. And it goes low and all those manganese hydroxides solubilize and you got pure MN divalent cation in the solution. So it's, it's all because of the chemistry of the solution. It's, it's better to say Bloxy uptake would be something like at the membrane level. It's better to say it makes it in less bioavailable. Technically, that's what a chemist would say. As you mentioned, the, a probe fundamentally measures the electrical conductivity of the solution. It doesn't measure boys. parts per million. That's, it's a calculated number. It measures electrical conductivity.
1: Yeah, for us, the reason why we wanted to kind of push that movement was communication when it's dealing with parts per million, you have two different measurements, 500 and 700. And when we're communicating via DM or message and understanding that EC is the universal language, um, it's just, it's better to run, you communicate in EC. Bruce, I'm always fascinated on what... uh, what people are passionate about and and how they got into their fields. Um, What, uh, what age did you develop a passion for plants?
0: Yeah, it was later in life. I mean, my parents didn't really have a garden and we weren't, and we lived in a rural area, but we weren't farmers. Um, And, um, un- unlike you, I know that you got interested in kindergarten. That's a, yeah. that, and But for me, it was taking a botany class in college and germinating seeds and just boom. It was like the switch went on. And I was in engineering at the time as a student. Um, and, well, I guess I could say I found the other engineers a little stiff about <laughs> their approach to life. <laughs> and um, I didn't fit in with that as well. But, so I switched to, to plant sciences and botany and liberal arts. And I started uh, growing a garden, um, just getting getting really involved with plants. Uh, and it, then it went from there. I started to take cl- classes in, in school. And I didn't really know what I was going to do as a profession. And it turns out I never had to figure that out. I just kept studying and taking more classes. And pretty soon you... End up being a professor at a university, and it's like, you know, I never had a real job; <laughs> <I> just kept,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I just kept doing. It. What do you What do you love about horticulture?
0: I think it's the caring for another living organism. Um, you know, people care for their pets; they they care for other people. That's part of biology, and in, in this case, it's taking an organism, and how fast can you make it grow? That's pretty interesting if the conditions are optimal. Um, and if something goes wrong, then how do you fix it? it? And what is it that went wrong and how do you fix that? Um, that's a For me, that's a pretty fundamental passion. And I think that would probably explain a lot of other people too, the reason for getting into it. I, I got to tell you a little story about this. So we get lots of funding from NASA my whole career. And NASA has a greenhouse at the South Pole. And that greenhouse is in complete darkness. I think it's 90 days a year. The sun never rises. And so you would think the people at the South Pole would just be in that greenhouse all the time because they grow tomatoes and lettuce to eat. And then we do studies. We means NASA does them, but I see the results. Um, it turns out th- there's a significant fraction of people that say, "No, nah, I'm fine without plants." You know, I don't, I don't need to go to the greenhouse. And the other people say, "I go there every day. I read, a, sit in the greenhouse and read a book." And I find that just fascinating. And I always wanted to follow that up. The people that don't think they need plants, what, what else is going on in their lives? I mean, I bet they don't have pets either. <laughs> stuff yeah. like that. And then the question comes up, "Okay, if you're going to go with NASA on a trip to Mars, you know, who would you like to go with?" And I I said once in an interview, "Well, those people that don't like plants, I don't want to go with them." <laughs> I get nervous. Um, did you
1: did you start off at another university or you was all, you were always went to Utah State?
0: No, I no one would keep me very long. <laughs> I I grew up in Minnesota, rural Minnesota. And I went to the University of Minnesota as a, as a freshman. And I graduated from there. And then, here we are in California, but I'd been fascinated by just life in California, the free speech movement at Berkeley. And um, at the time, I had a girlfriend that was at Berkeley. And off I go to California. And I... Uh, started a master's degree at UC Davis. Um, We won't talk about what year that was, but it was a while ago. And that was great. That was a great school, and I was in the Department of Vegetable Crops there, so really focused on vegetables. And then an opportunity to work on a Ph.D. came along at Penn State University, so other part of the nation, um, but also a very big agriculture school, and that combined my engineering background with plants because we were working on energy efficiency in greenhouses, root zone heating and um, optimal temperatures. Uh, and then at the end of that, a position opened up at Utah State University. And, then I, and there was a famous plant physiologist there named Frank Salisbury that wrote the best-selling plant physiology book ever written um, And it was an opportunity to work with him that brought me back west to Utah. And then the rest is history, right? I've been at Utah a long time now.
1: Now, When did you guys start the cannabis research program at Utah State?
0: Right after it became federally legal to to grow low THC cannabis. There were some growers in states where it was legal that wanted to fund us to do research because... We, we we've been doing research on indoor agriculture with NASA for a long time nutrition lighting all the same things and i knew these big growers and they said we would like to fund you and the the university up until that time said no 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 we can't take this money too risky we'll get crossways with the federal government and you you can't do cannabis research on campus you know it had to be sort of clandestine but then, gosh, what year was that? 2018? I've forgotten the year. Yeah, of it. When, it was when,
1: when the DEA it, legalized it, him. Yeah,
0: yeah, and, and the legal counsel said, ah, okay, it's safe now. You can take the money and start doing research, so that's when it started. December 18, it was December, and I think it was 2018, and we, we, uh, we knew it was coming, and we had, we had something like 44 growth chambers in my lab. I mean, we were ready to go right out of the gate with uh, cannabis research. Yeah,
1: because you were focused on indoor cultivation, being with NASA, and so you yeah. went right in. You were ready.
0: Yes, yes. We've, we've done very little field research, a, a little bit in collaboration with my colleagues in the field, but it's predominantly uh, greenhouses and growth chambers.
1: How many, um, how many cannabis research facilities are there in universities across the United
0: States? I think on paper, well, first of all, there's one agriculture school in each state. And here in California, it's the UC Davis. Um, on paper, all of those schools have some kind of a cannabis program. Almost all of them call it HEMP because that's a safer-sounding word. Nobody calls it marijuana, Um, but but they they call it hemp. And most of them are studying it for uh, fiber and for feed, for seed, for animals and seed for people. Um, It's much more unusual to have a medical cannabis research program, but there are a few schools Maybe even several now schools that are doing medical cannabis, so it's not it's not totally unique. I think maybe the difference is they didn't all have the infrastructure to get ramped up as fast as we did
1: yeah, it was um when I came over and visited your your lab um, back then, I knew you were huge in lighting, and that's why we worked together a lot. On, on what the cannabis plant utilizes for for lighting, but then going over and visiting your lab, I realized, wow, you do way more with nutrition. I mean, it's um. Why do you think? What do you think that is? You think you know, more of YouTube and the channel is more about lighting, or
0: yeah, it's a good. I mean, part of it probably has to do with my company, Apogee Instruments, which sells instruments to measure lighting, mm-hmm. quantum meters, spectroradiometers, all that kind of stuff. And so that's um, helped. We do a lot of we call it photobiology research, and we did a lot of that with NASA too. What what ratios of colors are you know? How can we manipulate plant growth with that? And I think it's really because. People are more fascinated with colors of light and plant growth. You can see the colors and, and, you know, what should we do? Nutrition, you got a bottle of nutrients and it looks the same as one that's completely different. That for sure affects plant growth, but it's not as a, a direct effect as lighting. And And lighting, of course, commercially is huge yeah. because now all the lighting companies are making all kinds of lights. So... I, th- I think it, it, what I'm trying to say is it's just such a visual effect to, to do lighting research.
1: Yeah, I looked at uh, one of your papers. You published um, Principles of Nutrient Management for Closed Systems. And can you talk about the goal with that study?
0: Yeah, we're, that was actually sort of a review paper, Uh Although we have some new data in that as well. But in in a nutshell, the, it was driven by a research for NASA. And NASA cannot have runoff. They can't have leaching. You just put the water in, you put the nutrients in, and it has to stay balanced week after week, month after month. You can't you can't fix your mistakes by leaching it out. There's nowhere to go. So what's the ratio of nutrients and water that you would put in to keep the plant optimally healthy with n- no leaching? And, and I think you've often called it runoff too. Zero. Um, so it was driven by that. And what we have done is use this principle called mass balance and the nutrients have to go somewhere. You put them in the water, and initially they're in the water, not the plant. And then they go in the plant. And now, how much do we want in the plant? And and let's say we want nitrogen. We want four percent nitrogen in the leaves. Well, how much do we have to put in the water to get four percent in the leaves? And you go through all of the elements that way. And we want you, cho- you can choose the number you want for the leaves. Let's say we want point four percent phosphorus, how much do we put in the solution to get 0.4% in the leaves
1: now what, what, is, what is the definition of mass
0: balance it's related to energy balance um, it, mass has to go somewhere, can't disappear it, it has to, at the end of the study, if you put 100 grams of say nitrogen in there you're going to have 100 grams somewhere in the system somewhere in the plant. Or it's either going to be in the plant or the solution. Um,
1: now, are you seeing, now knowing that you can't have any runoff or, or the right technical terms, leaching, um, are you seeing different fertilizers get picked up in different amounts? And how do you control that?
0: They, they definitely get picked up in different amounts. They And the, the three big, Elements are nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, NPK. And, and because of that, all fertilizer bags have three numbers, and that's the nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and the fertilizer. All three of those have active uptake. So if you take a plant in a container and you put the fertilizer in and you start measuring the nutrients, let's say we measured them every hour. We've we got plenty of money. We're just measuring them all the time. All of the other elements would stay relatively constant, but the N, the P, and the K would have active uptake, and the plant will draw those to near zero in the solution. And then you you measure it, and you go, oh, my God, there's zero. We need to put more in. And you put more in, and the plant takes those up, and you more in, and the plant takes those up, and pretty soon you have a toxicity problem. And mass balance says no. You have put those in the solution, they're in the plant where we want them. Don't worry about it. If it's low in the solution, that's a good thing. That's a healthy plant. It took them out of the solution. Don't panic and keep putting them in because it, you've already put them in. The analogy I've used is like feeding a dog, you know, I. You feed a dog and in one minute it'll eat all its food, right? and Well, the bowl is empty, the dog must be hungry. And if you keep doing that, you get such a fat dog, and roll over and put its paws in the air. But you know that the dog had plenty to eat. And if the bowl is empty, you fed it, and that's fine. So that's the same principle as um, fertilization, where we don't fundamentally go by the concentration left in the media we go by what we put into the media.
1: Are you seeing ratios come how are you are you feeding with different ratios of fertilizer at different times or it's always the same inputs?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, let me address it in a big picture. What was it? Socrates that said the uh, unexamined life is not worth living. Well, I kind of twist that and I say the unstressed life is not worth living either. Yeah. <laughs> you, we give ourselves stress and that's what gets us excited about things. And the same thing with plants. An optimal plant is not completely free of stress. You get a big lush plant that it would get diseases more quickly. So we, the optimum plant is has precision stress. And one of the key ways we can stress it is nutrients. Um, get those at just the right levels to make the plant have to um, work harder to do things. Um, and, and there's two approaches to that. One is keep the nutrients low to make the plant work hard to get the nutrients. And the other is to have them high so the plant... It works to keep toxic levels out, and, and both of those are used as a, as a way of precision stress. It, as a first pass, the ones that have active uptake are also mobile, meaning they can be redistributed in the plant. The, and being mobile in the plant is a very good thing. Um, it, it moves it where the plant needs it the most. But interesting, NPK, are the three elements that are the most highly mobile... Um, and that what that means is that older leaves get deficiencies first because the plant cannibalizes them. But it's not completely true because manganese has active uptake and that is minimally mobile in the plant. It goes in the old leaves and it stays there. We've, we've had lettuce plants that have, we test the old leaves, the medium leaves, the young leaves. The old leaves have what would be consider toxic levels of manganese the middle leaves are right on the money and the young leaves are deficient and it's the same element growing in the same solution just cuz it's not mobile calcium for sure is like that you get it goes in the old leaves and they just go higher and higher and higher and here's these young leaves that they, they have very low levels of calcium cuz it's so immobile but to back to the short answer Yes, if they have active uptake, they're, they're typically always mobile. Um, but there's a few exceptions. Yeah. Can you explain what WUE is? Yeah, in the case of plants, it's water use efficiency. And if the units are grams or pounds of plant biomass per volume of water transpired... And that could be pounds per gallon. In our case, it's usually grams of dry biomass per liter of water. And it's a critical ratio because that affects how much fertilizer you have to put on. If the plant's going through a lot of water, you water a lot and the fertilizer can be very dilute. And conversely, if it's in like a high humidity environment, hardly going through any water... You, the, the fertilizer needs to be much more concentrated. And uh, there's a. So, what changes water use efficiency? In the greenhouse, with lower humidity and, and sunlight, the water use efficiency is typically about three grams of biomass per liter. Now, we take those plants and put them in a, indoors, humidity is high. Carbon dioxide is typically elevated, and that closes stomates, makes the plants grow faster. And they're under LEDs, which are cool. There's not such a big thermal load on the plants. So that water use efficiency can go from 3 to as high as 6 grams per liter. And what that means is we should be doubling the concentration of nutrients that we're putting on because they're growing fast and they're not using very much water.
1: So when we're needing to feed a higher EC value with CO2, it's not that the plant's working harder. It's that the water use efficiency...
0: Is better. is higher. Yeah.
1: And the same, because I was always under the assumption that higher PPFD with LED lighting is increasing energy to the canopy, which is making
0: us feed a higher EC is that the case or? It partially, if if the technology changes from high pressure sodium to LEDs at the exact same light level, the the, the heat from the LED lights make them use more water. Or HPS, you mean? HPS, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, Did yeah. I get that backwards? Thanks. H, HPS. The heat so, from the HPS makes them use more water. So you would make it more dilute. You move to LEDs, they're using less water. It needs to be more concentrated. That, so that's a fundamental principle, and that's, we've shown that. But what if you took a PPFD of 500 and you raised it to 1,000? You know, you doubled it, you'd think, whoa, these plants are growing a lot faster. But in that case, the water uptake also doubles. So it's the same fixture same room so the ratio of water and nutrients doesn't change with light level you can double the light and you end up doubling the growth rate and you double the transpiration and the water use efficiency stays the same
1: so it's more about transpiration Mm -hmm. now in regards to co2 why why does that affect water use efficiency so Mm -hmm. much
0: the way I like to explain it, first of all, the word stomata comes from the Greek word for mouth. And so here's us. Our, when we run, you're wide open, you've got to have more oxygen. You're also breathing hard, you're losing more water. Well, plants growing faster, it's got to open its stomates to get carbon dioxide. And as soon as it opens its stomates, the water starts to go out faster. So this is a big challenge for all plants, how to get CO2 in without losing too much water. And plants have, boy, that is very well studied in the plant physiology literature. But now, using this analogy with people, what if we said, we want to make it easy on the people, we're just going to fill the room with oxygen. They don't have to breathe as hard. And and we wouldn't have to breathe as hard, and we wouldn't lose as much water because cause we get pure oxygen. Well, with plants, we give them high CO two. Hallelujah! They get a lot of CO two. Their stomates just close. They why would I have to open the, my stomates? There's plenty of CO two,
1: which automatically changes water use ratio yeah. And efficiency.
0: Yeah. It's really interesting. The that numerator is. goes up because of CO2 and the denominator water goes down. And that's where we, get, we go from like three grams per liter to up as high as six.
1: So the, the plants are drinking less, but you need to feed a higher EC to get, to get the, minerals yeah. into the plant. Yeah. So, I mean, when you're seeing deficiencies, when you, you say, you know, you weren't running CO2, your CO2 levels are averaging around 500 you come in and you put you know add 700 ppms of CO2 bring up the CO2 levels to 1200 and you start to see deficiencies it's water use efficiency
0: yeah it could be lack of nutrients yeah Is lack of not- nutrients yep. yeah
1: high raise the ec yeah um, and same thing with with LEDs because of the heat you know HPS has a lot of heat down on the canopy changing the water use efficiency and then less yeah. heat I didn't know what water use efficiency was until we it's, talked, but that, I thought it was really interesting. It's
0: really underappreciated it is. in terms of nutrition. And that paper that you referenced, that's a big part of that paper, is explaining that to people. And it's a scientific paper, but we have a lot of diagrams in there and figures, and you know, I hope it's easy to read for anybody.
1: Talking about CO2, do you need to increase PPFD on lighting? When you when you add
0: CO two, not necessarily. Um, it's really it comes down to an economics thing. It's just always cheaper to raise the CO two up to an optimal level, and then put as much light as you can on, depending on the electric bill and the economics of the input of electricity and the value of the crop. But CO two is a relatively cheap input. How
1: significant is CO two regarding? quality or, you know, yield on cannabis?
0: Most of the research on this comes from other crops um, in the field, you know, all of our major agronomic crops. And we typically say raising CO2 from 400, which is ambient, to 1,200, which, first of all, 1,200 is the, um, you're 99% of the way there to saturation of the CO2 effect. Um, you're, you, you don't. There's not economic value of going higher than that. Okay, so we go from 400 to 1,200. That's typically associated with about a 30 percent increase in yield. That's huge. And that's without increasing that's, uh, any other variable. Nothing else changes.
1: But obviously, yeah. you're going to have to increase EC
0: just a bit mm-hmm. because yes. of W yes. water use efficiency. Mm-hmm. That's significant. In, in a lot of cases, we get away with a certain amount of sloppiness in fertilization because we overwater and we over fertilize and you just drain it, wash out your mistakes. But the goal is not to wash out mistakes. It's not to have any mistakes in the first place. Have optimal nutrition so you're not running water down the drain. Yeah,
1: 30%. I mean, it's different coming from you other than like a nutrient company trying to sell a fancy bottle. Like, thirty, you know, everyone throws around 30%, but to say... You actually have studies that are shown thirty percent increase when using CO two. It's everybody should be running CO two.
0: Oh, they should. Yes,
1: I mean that's that's big, Bruce. how, how familiar are you with hop and Viroid?
0: Well, I know it's a big problem in cannabis, and uh, because of that, we've worked with Two Genomics in in Colorado um, to test our lines. Um, I, I know people are. It's it's showing up everywhere. I I, I know that. So, but um, I'm not a plant pathologist. So if you get deep into the viral pathology, you're gonna. Oh, I'm, D- I'm D- not going to D- give you detailed answers. But I sure know it's a huge problem in cannabis.
1: Have you ever thought about doing work on hop and viride?
0: Well, we one of the interesting things. First of all. we're pretty sure it came from hops. That's why it's called hop latent virus. And in the case of hops, all the hop plants have it, but they don't show symptoms. They just live with this virus and it's not a problem. So it made the jump from hops to cannabis. And in cannabis, it can be what we call asymptomatic, just no symptoms until the plants get stressed. And then then you get... Some big problems. Um, so in our studies, at least the lines we have, we have lines that have it and ones that don't. And the ones that have it uh, haven't shown symptoms. So it's really interesting. Some, lots of plants show symptoms, but not all. And I'm, I'm looking forward to doing more research on that. But it's not a good thing. <laughs> I mean, we, we don't want it in our plants.
1: Have you heard of any studies that have cured or cleaned hopplat enviroid or any viruses out of out of plants?
0: Well, there are lots of studies on cleaning viruses out of plants. They're just not in cannabis. Um, but a great and this is where I guess as academics you study other plants and then you take what you can apply to cannabis. But a really good example is potatoes. They're vegetatively propagated. And potatoes get viruses and they're bad. So we use tissue culture, micro propagation, to take those cells that don't have the virus in them and propagate them in tissue culture to get get a virus-free potato plant. And then you regenerate the plant and you're careful. And I think in the potato industry... I'm going to take a guess, maybe six generations uh, that they grow them, and then they say, okay, too risky. We're going to start over with tissue-cultured plants that we know are clean. So tissue culture is widely used to uh, get rid of viruses in plants.
1: Do you think it's important that it's meristem tissue culture?
0: or? Well, our understanding of that is it's do you really because the virus is in all the cells, but if we take just a few cells right in the meristem, they're growing so fast that they outgrow the virus. Those don't have virus in them, and you regenerate the whole plant. So it's really micro-propagation. You know, what if, what if you took a cutting, and you say, well, will just take a small cutting. uh uh-uh, that's not good enough. It just has to be very tip of the plant, which requires uh, tissue culture. And even then, in other crops, it's not 100%. Some, sometimes you get some cells that's there. You just have to throw those away.
1: It's really important um, being that these cultivators need to always have new clean genetics consistently and managing that book of genetics without a lot of labor and a lot of square footage and tissue culture gives you that ability. I mean, when I... uh like one of the prototypes i i sent out to my place immediately as soon as i got the media from mike and all the guys were just running tissue culture right there in the hallway <laughs> so it's um it's it's definitely needed for sure um i know you've done a lot of studies on stressing the root zone in early flower what have <clears throat> what have you been seeing with root zone stress in early flower
0: um the biggest thing is high nutrient stress, osmotic stress, which is like water stress, um, and the goal is to keep the plant compact. If it's like we said before, if it's everything's perfect, the water is high, that you just get a big, big plant that's not tough. Um, so the goal is to have some high electrical conductivity stress, especially during those first four weeks of flowering. Right after the first four weeks after the start of short days, when they rapidly elongate, keep the plant compact during that period of time. Now, this is precision stress. So we've done some studies where the EC was a little high, and we got compact plants, yes, but the yield went down 20%. The cannabinoids did not. They stayed the same, interestingly enough. Um, it, so we. We keep tweaking this, and um, generally it's high EC. I think you guys use that too, high EC during the first four weeks and then bring the EC back down. Have you
1: found a happy medium on stacking EC? I I,
0: I think the best answer to that is not yet. (laughs) Yeah, as a general rule, first of all, we use pretty dilute fertilizer, so, so it might be two in the beginning. And then we raise it up to six and even eight, and then bring it back down. And I can tell you, it's—I'm sure you've seen it too. Cannabis is just tough as nails. I mean, these high yeah. ECs, other lesser plants would be wilting. They'd be, oh my God, they're near death. Now, would your was it on your six to eight
1: EC that you were seeing the negative effect on yield? Um, was that the runoff EC or was that peak EC with dryback?
0: Um, first of all, in those studies, we didn't have any dryback. We wanted We used electromagnetic probe. Mm-hmm. Um, we used probes from uh, um, Arroya; they're called now that yeah. the Arroya probes. And so they gave us lots of probes for this research. Um, incidentally, they just came out with a new probe <laughs> for for this work. <clears throat> which they sent us a bunch of prototypes to test. But we were using that right in the middle of the Grodan block. And then we're simultaneously overwatering just a little bit so we could check this the true solution EC. <clears throat> and as a general rule, they're the same. But as we got later in the life cycle, the solution EC was 30 or 40% higher than measured... <clears throat> by the probe, um, and it's like, oh, wait a minute—is the probe wrong? No, it's because the probe is measuring the EC in the middle of the block, and what came out the bottom was the just the last centimeter of the block. So That's you're
1: you're result. at like six EC <clears throat> full saturation, full saturation <clears throat> at like seven or six or seven uh, or six or eighty C is, I mean, at forty percent dry back.
0: What do you? Think like what eighteen twenty? When you do dry bag, the salt stays the same, <clears throat> but the water is less, yeah.
1: mm-hmm.
0: so. so it can easily double the EC.
1: So we're not far off in how we run EC in the beginning of flower. I mean, we're we're probably peaking out around an eight EC with forty percent dry bag. So kind of would be about a four EC in the in the block <clears throat> or a three three and a half, four, at full saturation. We usually run about a six to an 80 C at 40% dryback.
0: It's tricky. I mean, we've done multiple studies, and sometimes we see no detrimental effect on yield. But I can't tell you that the EC was perfectly controlled. You know, sometimes you're trying to bring it down, and it didn't come all the way back down. Bruce, can you talk about some of the studies that
1: you've done on phosphorus?
0: Yeah, we just published a, <clears throat> a referee journal article on phosphorus in cannabis, and cannabis is—it's one of the elements that's unique in cannabis. Uh, typically, crops we would keep the phosphorus input at fifteen parts per million. Let's even less than that, twelve to fifteen ppm. And with cannabis, that's, that's, that low level of phosphorus is fine for vegetative growth. They don't need any more. But then they start to flower, and the, the flowers don't have any seeds in them. With the female plants. And plants are programmed to move phosphorus into their seeds. All plants do this. They give the seeds a good start in life, get them high phosphorus in the seeds. Well, seeds are pretty little. And here's this cannabis with this big clump of tissue up there. There's no seeds, but the plant cannibalizes phosphorus from its leaves and moves it into the flower. That's a mobile element. And so we've seen that by week-by-week by week tests, the phosphorus in the leaves goes from ample to just adequate to below adequate in the leaves And meanwhile the phosphorus in the flower clumps Is building up like crazy So you could say well if it's building up The plant must need it But we're quite certain that all that phosphorus in the flowers Is storage phosphorus There's a compound called phytic acid That just stores phosphorus for future use It's not functional um, so it looks like the plant is out of phosphorus, and we end up giving it more phosphorus. Um, and so we've how much phosphorus do we need? And we've our most common thing gosh, we must have done six studies on phosphorus and, and they're often 30 ppm, 60 ppm and 90, those three levels. And we typically see no effect on yield at all from that. What we do see is an increase in runoff and leaching of phosphorus. And our paper is on sustainable cannabis nutrition. We're trying to get people to use less phosphorus so we don't pollute the lakes and rivers with phosphorus. If um, you get too much phosphorus, then could get algal blooms and toxicities. Phosphorus is a bad environmental pollutant. It, as much as we are campaigning to get people to use less phosphorus. Um, there is some data from Nurit Bernstein's lab in Israel that shows a careful study on phosphorus, and her high THC cultivar showed no effect. 30, 60, 90, there was no value of high phosphorus. But she had a low THC cultivar that did show a value of, of 30. When the yield went up 30 to 60 to 90, um, so there might be genetic interactions in here.
1: But she didn't see it on any high THC cultivars. It was just low well, THC.
0: Y- yes, but to be fair, she only had one high THC cultivar. But but the point is there could be some cultivars might benefit from more than others. That's one of the things we want to study is, is there ones that benefit from more phosphorus. The, but the ones we've tested do have not.
1: Yeah, the test that you have done, you haven't seen an increase in benefit mm-hmm. of yield or quality, or THC, yeah. oil production using phosphorus. Th- yes. But over too much phosphorus really doesn't hurt, harm the plant in any way. Yeah. But it that, harms the environment.
0: It harms the environment.
1: What, what is it about phosphorus that harms the environment?
0: It's the limiting element for algal growth in almost all bodies of water, even in the ocean, lakes, rivers. So if they get high phosphorus, the algae just take off. And they turns the water to split pea soup, kills the fish, um, um, and it has toxic compounds in the algae that are just hard on other uh, aquatic life. So, its algal blooms are a, a bad thing environmentally, and they're caused by runoff and leaching from agriculture. Not not all of them, but a big portion of it. And to this same topic. Academics nationwide are trying to get corn and soybean and wheat growers to put on less phosphorus. You don't need so much. They say, well, it might be a good year. I'm going to put on the phosphorus. So we, we raise it in our solutions to 30 parts per million. Which is com-
1: more than adequate.
0: Now, you want to make sure you get your customers to, to and understand that's, that studies indicate that's very adequate level.
1: Yeah, if you would talk to some of our growers, they would say, "Oh, well, we need to add PK, you know, to to your fertilizer line because mm-hmm. we think." But even just Proline as it sits, it has more than adequate, you know, phosphorus. Mm-hmm. Um, but we even have cult- cultivators adding more. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah.
0: yeah, and and it's not just cannabis. If you go up the road, I, my colleagues at UC Davis. Trying to get the, all the fruit growers and the nut growers to put on less phosphorus. And they just say that something doesn't look right. I'm going to put more fertilizer on. That's a common thing in all of agriculture. And the over fertilization has detrimental environmental effects. Do you think,
1: as far as field crops, 100%, but do you think that changes with like indoor greenhouse or indoor facilities? Well,
0: um, in principle, no, but in the field, first of all, there's a big volume. I mean, the roots can spread out. They can get phosphorus from a whole bunch of places. If you can imagine a field, it might be a cubic meter of soil, of root zone, and then we go down to just a pot, like like a Grodan cube. It's a tiny fraction of the field, so we have to keep putting it in. Um, and that's where mass balance comes in. How fast is the plant growing? How much do we need to add to get there? But it's it's quite different in the field because most of the phosphorus is on the solid phase of the soil. It's in the soil, and the plants. It can be very dilute because the roots spread and out spread like out. crazy. Yeah.
1: Um, I know you. When I was there and I visited you, you were doing a lot of studies on temperature. You had a lot of different chambers um, that you're running warm climates and really super cold climates on cannabis. What, did, what have you guys been learning about temperature in regards to cannabis cultivation?
0: Well, first of all, it's understudied because it's hard to study. You need a different chamber for each treatment. Uh, but it, as a general principle, it's good to start warm and cool it off. Now, exactly how warm and exactly how cool—that depends on the light level, depends on the CO2 level. But warmer, and in, in Fahrenheit, I would definitely be in the mid 80s somewhere when you start get the plant to develop quicker. It spreads out, it captures the light quicker, and then in early flower growth, the the flowers expand quicker too. The downside is the plant can get taller with the warmer temperatures. But then when we cool it off at the end, you stretch out that period of flower fill, and I think you get a higher quality flower because it's maturing in a cooler temperature. You didn't rush it. You let the flower um, expand by itself. You can get a little more dense bud. And by cooler in Fahrenheit, um, could be the mid-70s, mid, mid, something like that, um, so that's the principle. The differences from heating and cooling of the root zone are typically really small. Mm. Just get the the shoot optimal and keep the roots the same temperature.
1: You've seen mid eighties in the beginning of flower, up until week three or four, or
0: well in in veg too. In veg, especially in veg, just yeah. to get it get it to just grow as fast as possible.
1: So mid 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 eighties veg to early flower. What. What week would you are you Mm. seeing would be start to start down? I
0: would gradually bring it down. Um, Starting week two, three. Yep, I think that's a good rule of thumb. Maybe even week four, um, taper it because this is assuming an eight-week crop cycle. Yep. One of the other temperature things we've been studying is day-night differential, and for most other crops. We say the day should be warmer than the night. That's just a long-standing thing. It's in all of the textbooks. But that comes from greenhouse cultivation, where it's cooler at night anyway. You're trying to keep it warm at night. Um, And here comes cannabis. 12 hours light, a long 12 hours dark. Should that be cooler than the day? Um, and, And then the question becomes... Could we use a warmer night and a cooler day to make a more compact plant? And this is a concept called diff, day day-night differential. And in floriculture crops, this is widely used. They use a cool day and a warm night. It's really odd, but it makes the plants compact. And it's very effective and it's widely used in many floriculture crops to keep a compact plant. I'm I'm going to talk in Celsius for a minute, but That's take fine. the numbers and double them, and you have Fahrenheit. Um, plus six would mean say uh, thirty day, twenty four night. That would be plus six. If you did twenty seven constant, that would be zero diff. Same average temperature, just zero diff. But now you keep going, and you get thirty night, twenty four day. And that would be a minus six diff. You're going to negative levels.
1: Now, with the negative levels and you're seeing the plant growth get
0: shorter, stunted, right? And that's what happens in many floriculture species. We have not seen that in cannabis. We've not seen that we can run this negative diff and make the plant more compact. So, so it doesn't it,
1: matter it, negative diff. Well, or,
0: it it turns out negative diff also reduced yield.
1: That's why I was going to say <laughs> it would would reduce <laughs> the yield because it seems like if the plant
0: is backwards. Yeah.
1: Well, n- not only backwards, but it's not getting warm. We we know what happens when you don't have high leaf surface temperature. The plant's not working as hard, and it affects yield mm-hmm. and overall growth. So that's probably why you're seeing a negative impact on yield.
0: Yeah. Um, but I, w- I will say a zero diff, same temperature day and night. That works beautifully, and that's what I often recommend.
1: So they're, they're, that's that's big because <clears throat> growing up in the cannabis industry, going to all the hydro shops and everybody on talking, they're like, "Yo, you need a ten percent, ten degree variant at night yeah. versus day.
0: You need to be ten, ten, ten degrees cooler at night. Ten degrees cooler." Yeah. The- but, of course, you can get big differences in the middle of summer, too. Hot day, cool night. But, but maybe that helps plants become more reproductive. We have not seen that in cannabis. Um, if so it doesn't like,
1: matter day, night, temperature. It, yeah. As far as the diff. Diff can be it, zero. It could be and zero. And you won't see any negative or positive impacts. It's right. just the same.
0: It's just the same as a, as a warm day, cold night. Yeah. If you were running a greenhouse... You, you don't want to have to heat it at night. It's expensive. Yeah. So you let it cool off just to yeah. save money on heat. Exactly. Now We're in indoor agriculture. God, we're cooling all the time. <laughs> you know, we yeah. can have whatever night temperature you want. It doesn't cost hardly any more to have a warm temperature at night indoors. So I think we need to rethink this day-night differential for all crops in indoor agriculture.
1: Now, in regards to temperature and CO2, Are you seeing any benefit of adjusting temperature when you're adding CO2?
0: Yes. Um, This is well studied and it comes right from the biochemistry of photosynthesis. Now this is going to sound like a beginning plant physiology class, but that's okay. Maybe we'll inspire listeners to study plant physiology. The name of the enzyme that that binds CO2 is called rubisco. That enzyme gets confused and it, oxygen, it sticks, oxygen sticks to it sometimes. So here's the enzyme. It's supposed to be binding CO2, but it binds oxygen. And when that happens, it's like a car backfiring. It's a boom, boom, you know, it's, it's a waste of energy. If we enrich CO2, the enzyme doesn't backfire anymore. It's got plenty of CO2. It's now it's super efficient. I suppose in a car analogy, it's like using some kind of jet fuel as a gas. It's really runs efficiently. The, this is called photorespiration, when the oxygen binds to the enzyme. And it's worse at high temperatures, much worse. So when we add CO2 and the system's running efficiently... Now we can elevate the temperature because the enzyme runs smoothly even at high temperature when we have elevated CO2. So we know from biochemistry studies and multiple studies on photosynthesis in crop plants, the temperature optimum shifts up 3 to 5 degrees Celsius when you have high CO2. The temperature optimum for photosynthesis shifts up.
1: So when running CO2 on an indoor facility, you're saying that you would possibly see better results in early flower upwards of 90
0: degrees Fahrenheit? Oh, no, when I talk about... The mid 80s, that's assuming high CO2. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Okay. am well, glad we clarified 86. that. Yeah. We, yeah. We, everything we do is elevated CO2. Okay. The only yeah. time okay. we don't have it's, elevated CO2 is when we do a CO2 stress study and then we turn it off. But so, it's, it's, so, in
1: regards to the mid 80s, <clears throat> it's that's with elevated CO2. Yeah. That's, the, that's the peak. I'm glad we ahead. clarified that.
0: Because oh, guys yeah. that
1: weren't running CO2 um, go in and pump 85 could, degrees.
0: It could be a little hot, yep.
1: Yeah, so no CO2, 78 to 80?
0: Yeah, in that ballpark. Yeah,
1: that's about what we usually yep. run. Yeah, oh. in in regards to humidity, where do you like to kind of, you know, where do you see it being the optimal?
0: yeah. I think there's a lot of things that are underappreciated, like CO2 enrichment. And there's some things that are, we over-worry about. And in some ways, vapor, humidity or vapor pressure deficit is something that I've seen people over-worry about it. The big deal is to keep it low enough so you keep microbial counts down you got to be below 60%. You don't want botrytis. You want to keep microbial counts low. That's huge. But plants, in theory, could grow a little bit better with high humidity. Again, they don't have to transpire as much. But when we water them, they just don't have water stress. So the benefit of high humidity is really quite small compared to the risk of getting... Um, high microbial counts. So we're always trying to keep the humidity about sixty percent. And then, like everybody, blow a lot of air. So it's sixty percent in the canopy, not just sixty percent up here, but sixty percent down where the leaves and flower buds are. And I think cannabis grows do a real nice job of that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I you see a seriously. lot of big fans.
1: Regarding humidity, where do you see it kind of having a negative effect on cannabis on the low side?
0: Well, I think if you got down below forty percent below forty yeah now you're now you're starting to make the plant it's it's evaporating a lot more water mm-hmm. um, but typically the, the plant's putting so much water in the air it's hard to get it low you got to have a lot of dehumidification capability to get it low
1: yeah no that's that's good to know so between no lower than forty percent and you really don't want any higher than sixty percent.
0: Yeah, and I would even say sixty percent in the canopy. <laughs>
1: yeah, in too. the canopy,
0: that's important
1: because yeah. it could be, you know, sixty percent in the room, but without good air circulation, you could be seventy, eighty percent. Yeah, I've seen better luck with stationary fans and getting a nice, consistent airflow through the room, not oscillating. Yeah, I, I don't really. Yeah. Love, I'm not a big fan of oscillating yeah. fans. Yeah,
0: yeah. No, it's, I'm not either. I just that. But they're often used.
1: Yeah, you're seeing them a lot.
0: Re- really, what if one thing we can do for get keep microbial counts low is blow it with fans in tubes, tubes with holes in them into the canopy. So you got your dry air coming and pushing the humid air up.
1: So for 2023, we're partnering on research and development. That's going to be fun. <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah, it is. We're going to learn a lot. I think you have a little. You have a formulation. And we want to do a side-by-side at Jungle Boy's in our R&D room and go side-by-side your formulation versus our formulation, which, you know, some things are similar, some things aren't. But it would be interesting to see um, what that looks like. You know, we're doing a side-by-side blended versus pro. So this is kind of the SOP to use fade with blended. Have you done any studies on nitrogen um use in the flower phase nitrogen
0: levels? You mean like <coughs> um flushing is not, that what you're thinking or Not
1: not really flushing cuz we're we're not flushing cuz we're switching out with calcium chloride, chloride and microbes micronutrients but um the effects of lowering nitrogen during the end of the flower uh okay.
0: Power we we have done a a study with that and it was related to um, the, you know precision stress and bring the n down and in that study we we started to now we went to zero n we didn't bring it down but um, the n okay. just went down in the tissue and the yield went down as we cut the n you know, so yeah. if we only cut it for a week, that wasn't a very big deal. But two weeks was bigger, three weeks was bigger.
1: Where were and you testing it at? What week did you test
0: the? Well, it, it started, it was multiple levels uh, one week, two weeks, three weeks, and four weeks. Four it, weeks was really detrimental. Four mm-hmm.
1: weeks into flower, week four? Uh, yeah, four weeks.
0: So, was eight weeks total. So yeah. after, you could say we cut the nitrogen after week four, after yeah. week five. A lot of stuff we do is to get a curve. I mean, we knew that was going to be detrimental. We just want to see how bad it was. What did got, you, you can see get the- at week six, cutting nitrogen? It was, it was detrimental. To yield? To, yeah, to yep, to yield. What did you see? Now, in Now, having said that, they were never over-fertilized. They were just adequate. They didn't have any reserves going into week six either because yeah. our solution is fairly dilute. Yeah, yeah. so you're, you're
1: only feeding two EC. Mm-hmm. And we're we're upwards of three, sometimes three and a half mm-hmm. with using LEDs. Yeah. So there's a lot more nutrients inside the tissue of the plant. They they can
0: yeah, they can store excess nutrients. Yeah. There's as as you guys know, there's so many factors here. There's one yeah. yield, yeah. which you just weigh the flowers. That's easy. How about flower quality? <laughs> Doing that kind of science is is it's just tricky. I mean yeah. We do a study and then we go, Yeah, is this reproducible? We do it again. We try it with some different ways, different interactions. And gradually you get some paradigms that, you know, it's, that's, you guys do that too. Tricky. Sometimes people do a study and this was 10% yeah. bigger. Yeah. We're well, done. That's, that's going to yeah. always happen. No, we're always no.
1: doing it. We never stop. The. Yeah. We didn't see a, a, a significant impact in yield but, in our tests. But like, like Bruce said, we're feeding a much higher EC, start EC, than, mm. than
0: he was. And, and have you found keeping calcium high to the end helps minimize botrytis? Yeah, that's big. That's yeah. a one element that's... What did you see
1: in your studies on eliminating nitrogen on finishing the plant, did you see an increase of T... Uh, uh, increase of...
0: Cannabinoids? Yeah. Um, mostly our strains are high CBD, but they still have THC. Um, no, we didn't see an effect on it. There was just no difference. Um, you would think they might concentrate a little. Um, that, that's the reasonable hypothesis. But on the other hand, cannabinoids are always turning over. They're synthesized and degraded and maybe not as fast as some other things. Um, So if there's less photosynthesis with lower nitrogen, there could be less synthesis of cannabinoids too. So it's a a tricky balance. Did you see
1: a (laughs) change in the flower structure or color?
0: Yeah, no. no, We didn't do rigorous studies on that, but there wasn't a visual... Okay. Yeah. One of the things we have started to look at is just bud density and just um, can yeah. we get some nice dense buds as opposed to airy buds? Yeah, we saw
1: a significant change in flower color in some mm-hmm. cultivars, you know, there were there it was significant. We more cultivars were turning purple for some mm-hmm. reason mm-hmm. by pulling that nitrogen. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I could I could believe that. I mean, that's anthocyanins. And if there's a little stress, the anthocyanins can go up. Yeah, that's what Chris was saying. Stressing the plant,
1: we're uh, you know causing a little bit of stress at the end, which is you know changing,
0: changing Mm -hmm. uh, the plant. Mm -hmm. So anthocyanins are in red lettuce, and there's all you know various amounts of red lettuce, and and we and other people you grow lettuce really optimally, and it's not very red. (laughs)
1: No, it's going to be fun this year to, to work with you on on a bunch of different studies, and we're really excited about it. For us, I think it's going to be big to just cut through the misinformation on plant fertilizer in the cannabis industry. It's going to be nice to have your help to just kind of get to the truth, right? And that's what we're big on, and I think, obviously,
0: you know. Let me mention one key thing. About differences in in approaches because we're a research lab we work with whole plants and we work with whole communities of plants but a whole community of plants might be four to six plants for us you know it might be half of this table is our experimental plot and we have to be real careful if the plants flop over on the side that's going to make yield go up sometimes we put a fence around them to hold them in so we can extrapolate to a bigger community of plants um but you, you it's it can be tricky to do the research on a small scale and extrapolate to a big scale and that's where you come in doing it on a big scale now does it does it uh, translate
1: now Cole bruce i appreciate you mainly making the trip out and um really value your time and value the partnership and uh looking forward to 2023
0: so thank you as as they say in the olympic model Sidious altius fortius and that means when you look that up in google it means faster higher stronger so i like to use Sidious altius fortius nice nice it was a pleasure thanks bruce thanks